Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, this is your word. So we know that it's good. We know that it's life-giving. For you are good and you are life-giving to your people. And we ask now that you would use this. That we might hear from heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be honest, some, uh, some sermon intros are hard to write. Sometimes I, I labor over them. I can't figure out how on earth I'm going to just figure out the introduction, and it's difficult. But then sometimes you come across something, and it falls in your lap, and you're like, surely this is made up. It's too good to be true. That was my week this week. It was a couple of days ago, actually, when I found this story, and the second I saw it was like, you have got to be kidding me. What a gift from the Lord. This is too perfect. You see, uh, next couple of weeks, one of the, the new great romantic comedy movies is coming out in America. I have no idea what the name is. I'm sorry. I didn't bother. I can't be bothered to know that. <laughs> but the, the key part of this romantic comedy is that the young... Caucasian lady who is the lead star is rather overweight. And so she came out on social media this week and said, what a great day for the world. The first plus size romantic comedy heroine in film history. Which is ambitious to say. A bit overreaching, perhaps, but she follows it up with saying, look, it's important. It's important that we teach our young girls that women who are not skinny or pretty still deserve love. She put that on the Internet, which is just, I mean, she's asking for it at that point. Of course, the Internet proceeds to inform her that she's actually not the first lead actress in a romantic comedy. There have been many others, and they begin to list them, Queen Latifah and others, but there's actually a running theme, is that all of the romantic comedies that have featured plus-size models have all been black, at which point she doubles down. This is the first landmark, large, big-budget romantic comedy with a plus-size heroine. And who's to say even those ladies were even plus-size at all when they... I'm not kidding, she actually said that. Who's to say they were even plus-size at all when they starred in their movies? And so it's created this just glorious moment of cultural crisis where we're watching people have a discussion about weight and whether weight is different for African-American ladies than it is for white ladies or Australian ladies. I love it. It's just fantastic. I'm like, this is too good. I mean, it's too good. Because they actually recognize the problem. They've got the problem exactly right. Is that our culture, Hollywood picket, has placed a tremendous value on very clear, measurable skill sets for what it means to be a desirable woman. An empty head, an empty stomach, a full bank account, and a full shirt. All those things are important in our current culture and nothing else. (laughs) 
They've diagnosed the problem correctly is that we've actually misvalued our women. We've placed all our emphasis on the wrong things. And now we've got to have some sort of better answer. And the problem is the solution they pose is just as ludicrous as the first one. A woman's value for love is determined by how much she weighs. Please, please, come on. But you see, it's actually showing in how it's kind of manifested in our culture. What we've ended up doing is by valuing these things these ways, we've, in essence, created an ideal. What does it mean to be a woman in America? And the problem is, is this faulty definition that we've held so tightly to for so many years through Hollywood and magazines and Photoshop and all kinds of other things has now come home to roost. We have sown the wind, we are reaping the whirlwind, and we are reaping it in abundance. The percentage of women that have eating disorders now. When I left youth ministry and came here, the numbers were scary then like in the neighborhood of like 50% of college students, young women. I mean, we we talk about like the pornography problem being rampant in America. Food for women is just as catastrophic. And so much of this is because we've held the wrong identity up as what a good and righteous and excellent woman is. We've had the wrong standard in place. And because we've had the wrong standard, we've created all sorts of manufactured pressures that have then cracked the psyche of the American woman. I mean, just, again, the the weight, that's comical. All external, measured on beauty. The Photoshop Generation. I mean, poor girls having to grow up now thinking that's what women actually look like when none of those pictures are correct. They've all been doctored tremendously. No one's shaped like that. And we get to the end of Proverbs. And I would suggest maybe for our young ladies today, there's probably not a more important passage in all of Scripture. Because whereas we consume Hollywood, and we consume Photoshop, and we consume magazines in the grocery aisle, we consume all of these ridiculous portraits of what women are supposed to be, God has actually given us what the target actually is. What is the ideal woman? And it comes at the end of the book of Proverbs. See, the book of Proverbs has been about two caricatures, wisdom and folly. The holy and the evil. The good and the bad. What what does it look like to live in these terms and in these worlds? And what does it kind of feel like? And what is that lifestyle like? And so much of this book has been specifically written from a father to a son. And it's had so much of the tone of, be careful what kind of ladies you engage with. But now God in his infinite wisdom closes the book with, I would say, perhaps the most beautiful illustration of them all. What does wisdom look like? 
What does righteousness look like? What does holiness look like? Better asked maybe this way, what is the hero woman supposed to be? Depending on your generation, that may have been, was it Rosie Rivet, the, Rosie the Riveter, right? I mean, she was one of the great heroes in America, maybe Barbie. Um, one of my friends actually in college wrote her, uh, her college thesis on Barbie. Did you know that if she was actually a real woman proportioned the exact same way, the first time she stood up, her top would snap her own spine and she would die instantly. <laughs> I'm not making this up. She would have to have titanium rods installed in her lower back to be able to support because her shape is so goofy, it would kill her. It's fatal. I mean, pay attention to this. The ideal woman for the last 50 years is fatal. This is, like, it's comical. So God tells us here, what does the ideal woman look like? What does... The best of the best act like what is a woman supposed to be? And these are phrased as proverbs, so uh, certainly it's going to create a, a target for us, but it's going to create a target that not every woman can hit every part of, certainly. Even in how it begins. An excellent wife who can find, no joke. She's far more precious than jewels. Well, absolutely true. Again, we've already seen the negative element of this emphasized over and over and over again, saying, look, a wretched wife, man, it's better to go live on the roof by yourself. Go, go live in a, in a ditch somewhere. It's more enjoyable. But now the counterpoint, the excellent one, what does a righteous wife, uh, what is she like? Well, she's worth more than the, the greatest of treasures. And her greatness, her value, her excellence, her beauty, her godliness, her wisdom, her delight are going to be seen in a multitude of different venues. We're going to look at them kind of out of order, but thematically. First, uh, they're witnessed in, in marriage with her husband. He even begins this way as it's written, the heart of her husband trusts in her. This is a woman who has wisdom so manifested in her life that the man is able, her husband is able to trust his entire heart with her. Please do not over or undervalue that sentence. That a husband's able to give his heart to his wife and to trust her because he knows she will handle it correctly. I mean, we, we joke about this, but are there things more fragile than the male ego? I'm not sure. And then to entrust it to someone who's not a male and to say she's trustworthy because she will handle this fragile ego, this heart with delicacy, with wisdom, with tenderness, with love. She will be trustworthy. And verse 12, she will do him good and not harm all of the days of her life. Her wisdom is so manifest that she's able to labor for his good and he benefits because of it. Of course, obviously, this is true for some because not all women are called to be married. We find this out certainly in the New Testament where it even goes so far as to say, look, I wish that some of you were the same way I were, single. Called to singleness forever. It's a good and godly way to live. But for those that are called to marriage, this is the ideal, the target for their relationship with their husband. 
In fact, actually, and when it's manifested in such wisdom and holiness and love like this, the, the next step is able to actually take place. Verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, the gates would have been a significant place. It would be kind of like town hall. It would be where all of the important things are taking place. The business of the town takes place. It would be the center point. And he's able to go and to participate in the most important and most significant business of the day. And he's known. He's able to function. He's able to do it. And you realize part of that is because she's actually set him up for success behind the scenes. She's done such a good job caring for him that he's able to actually do his job well. We're finding out fun stories about this in church history. There's a great one. This one's actually relatively new. It's just come out. um, They're just documenting it like a couple of months ago. There's a famous pastor named Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan. Baxter was famous for his visitation. He visited everybody in his congregation uh, at least twice a year, and then he died young, which you might guess. Uh, It killed him very rapidly. He was famous also for his letter writing. He wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of letters, and they're considered some of the most beautiful letters in church history. And they're just now actually starting to figure out he actually didn't write letters. Mrs. Baxter did. She answered his mail, and she was such a saint with such a profound sense of scripture and theology, such an amazing sense of wisdom and pastoral theology that her writings were like hearing the echoes of heaven. People have always wondered, how did Baxter do it? I mean, we know that it was, took a massive toll on him physically, but how did he, he, how did he fit everything in in the day? He didn't. He had a noble wife that was making his ministry profitable, more successful because she was able to assist him in such a way. The marriage is built up. It's strengthened. One of joy and delight. It doesn't just stop in the marriage, though. It then spills over into domestic life, into the home. uh, And her domestic abilities are profound and manifold. Verses 13 through 15, she seeks wool and flax. By that, uh, when she goes to do her job, she has a a discerning eye. She's not just taking any sort of material and then kind of doing her work with it. She's able to think carefully about the work that she does and then works with her own willing hands, making uh, the domestic things needed in the home. She's just like the ships of a merchant. She's bringing her food from afar. She's wise and cautious in how she's conducting the business of the home and very clever In making things happen. And in order to do so, verse 15, a reoccurring theme in this chapter. She works hard. She rises while it is yet night. Verse 18, her lamp does not go out at night. She is a woman of tremendous industry. She's not consuming the bread of idleness. She's working hard. And what is she working hard at? She's providing food for her household. However many people that is. That might be one person herself. That's okay. That's fine and that's fair. But what is the godly woman looking like? It's one who is wise but hardworking and caring for her domestic duties for herself even. Providing portions for her maidens. 
Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. You all know what that is. That passage is self-explanatory. If you grew up in a more agrarian culture, that's how you made thread. You took wool and after you had carded it, carded it multiple times to get all the junk and gunk out. Maybe you remember doing this in elementary school and Charlotte Mecklenburg school system. I remember from third grade making thread this way. After you had carded the thread and got all of the fibers stretched out the right way, then you would begin to slowly take the process of twisting them with a weight holding it down so that it could pull it tightly and twist it. And it was unbelievably laborious, unbelievably monotonous, and tremendously time-consuming, and arthritis in a single activity. But here, this woman is not afraid of getting her hands dirty. She's not afraid of hard work and, in fact, even taking one of the time-consuming domestic tasks and knocking it out. Verse 21 makes me chuckle for thinking about this in the South. She's not afraid of snow for her household. Ah! (laughs) This winter is the winter after an El Nino And winters after El Nino in South Carolina are the ones where we either get almost no snow or 15 inches. Those are really the only two categories traditionally for winter after an El Nino. Here it's portrayed as, this is a woman who doesn't have to be afraid of snow because her children are well provided for, her house is well provided for. They have what they need. And in fact, actually not do they just have what they need, but they have it with a sense of style has a little bit of panache to it. It's in scarlet colors so that when the snow falls, you can actually see where the children are. They don't disappear. (laughs) Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is hard work in her domestic duties. This is one area I think actually sometimes every once in a while, it usually comes out right around Mother's Day, I guess, that the world does a good job in terms of when those people add up how much a mom is worth in the home with her various duties. Like, add up whatever numbers you want, multiply it times 10, multiply it times 100, it's still not enough. Uh, When done correctly, what this woman here is manifesting is worth her weight in gold. To manage the household is an amazing task. To think about what food needs to be purchased so that it can be cooked, so that it doesn't just magically appear on the table, is an amazing ability that has to be honed and developed. It's a process. It's a task. Her wisdom is not just confined to marriage and the home. And so that's actually sometimes where the church is, I think, maybe erred a little bit here, is to say that her task is only in her marriage and only in her home. But it actually extends far further than that. Verses 16 and 24, it, it's manifested in her business. She considers a field. She buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. She's at, busy at work in the business of the home, but in the business of the land to provide for her home. Verse 24, verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. She's contributing to the value of the home, contributing to the income, contributing to the well-functioning. And because it's functioning so well, this then provides her with the ability, verse 20, to show charity. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's able to assist those with lesser 
gifts, lesser abilities, or lesser blessings and able to help them. Realistically, for being honest, at this point, the husbands in the room are like, right on. I like it. The wives are like, I'm tired. Like, you haven't even finished the sermon, and I'm tired. I mean, I'm exhausted. I mean, I know I'm supposed to get an hour of sleep extra last night, but I didn't, and I'm tired. Verse 17 and 22 are key here. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arm strong. 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She is not a martyr. She's not the woman who sacrifices her own identity her own being, her own existence on the altar of the family or the home. She acknowledges that she's part of the home and is providing even for her own self in the way. One of those kind of classic examples, you see some where, uh, particularly again, young moms, so busy caring for the home, caring for the children, caring for husband, that they, they haven't read their Bible in years. I would contend you're not taking care of the home correctly. If you're not able to exercise the discipline to put the boundaries in so that you have the time to devote yourself to the scriptures, to devote yourself to prayer, to devote yourself to the Lord. This is not one of those situations where here's a woman who's working herself into the ground so hard that she has a heart attack and dies so he can get another wife who's worth her weight in jewels. She's providing for herself along the way, caring for her own needs as well. And it's intriguing. Because the only commentary we've had on her appearance at this point is just simply that her arms are strong. And I'm like, if you're doing all this stuff, no joke your arms are strong. Stronger than mine. I have the arms of a man who reads books for a living. This is a woman who does hard labor. Carrying wool, carrying flax, she's making thread, she's weaving, uh, she's passing the shuttle through, she's weaving along the, the loom. There are amazing abilities here. But the crowning glory of it all comes in verses 25 and 26. Strength and dignity are her clothing. This ESV here says she laughs at the time to come. I I like the one. She laughs at the future. She's so anchored in her understanding of God and his provision for her that she's clothed in strength. And this is not meaning she's got like testosterone and she's all beefy. That's not what it's intending. She has strength of spirit, a dignity, a glory that belongs inside of her because of what God has done. And the result of it is she is able to laugh at what may come. And at risk of overgeneralizing and at risk of getting myself out of the pulpit, I might say this verse is unbelievably insightful into how many, into the minds of so many women and how they work. Is that I would say so many women having done counseling now for more than a decade, live in a position of fear, dreading the unknown, 
because so much of their life is outside of their own control. They live with a husband that they can't control, who may or may not be a good man that day. They live with children that they can't control because sometimes they're hellions and sometimes they're not. They live with desires that they can't control. They live with bodies that they can't control. They live with aging that they can't control in a culture that they can't control and so often are paralyzed by fear. And interestingly here, what's the target? What's the crowning glory of this woman who is so hardworking and wise is that she is so knowledgeable, so anchored in her faith, so grounded in godliness that she's able to laugh at the future. She's well prepared. She's done her industry to the best of her ability and she may rest in what God is doing. And the next thing is the outpouring out of her is not words of confusion and terror, but instead she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Again, her her words are not those that are coming out of a position of paralysis, of fear. They're not those that are coming out of frustration or anger with the domestic situation. It's not words that are coming out with scorn or derision, but wisdom and kindness. which produces a result. Her children rise up and call her blessed. When it comes time for testimony time as to the value of the woman, to look at the value of her service, to look at the excellence, the the delight of what she's done, even her children acknowledge it. That even though they were, in many cases, the objects of her discipline, in many cases, they were the the showcase for her wisdom because they got to receive it. They rise up and call her blessed because they're such happy recipients of what she's given. On top of that, her husband too is able to praise her. And look at what verse 29, I mean, what an amazing statement. (laughs) Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Far superior to any. And then 30 and 31 kind of give us the final closing commentary. And here we finally get to see her physical attributes described to us. Charm is deceitful. It lies. Beauty is vain because it's fleeting. Gravity always wins. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Where is her beauty found? It's not found in the the charm of her personality. Some of us weren't given very charming personalities, and that's a good comfort. It's not determined by her beauty. This is what the movie industry is finally starting to kind of at least have a conversation about. It's not determined by her dress size. It's not determined by the quality of her skin or the color of her skin. It's not determined by how many split ends she has. It's determined by how she fears the Lord. And I think 31 is probably perhaps the most shocking of them all. 
You want to see how excellent this woman is. Let her works do the talking. I mean, put kind of modernly, the proof is in the pudding. Just go look at what she's done. Sure, charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, it's in vain. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Let's go look at what her hands have produced and let's see what happens. Let her works praise her in the gates. She will generate her own reputation for she is a magnificent creature of God. Yeah, what do you do with a passage like that? We got all the verses, right? I mean, I think we fairly accurately explained what they mean. We've talked through them all. I mean, we even, I even explained the distaff and the spindle. Come on. <laughs> what do we do with a chapter like this? And I would say first and foremost is to acknowledge that we are all involved constantly in a battle for our minds. where we have this war waging within us as to what is good and excellent and noble and lovely. Paul's on this idea when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because you see, our culture is constantly shouting from the rooftops a specific image of what women are supposed to be. And it's wrong, and it's bad, and it's destructive, and it's evil. I read an academic article about 10 years ago, and the the gentleman was making the case that our culture is attempting to turn our young ladies into the fantasies of middle school boys. That's the model of what our culture has put forward. The fantasy and delight of a middle school boy. And the thing is, the vast majority of the time, we're not even aware of the warfare in our own minds. You know the other thing that's really interesting about this passage? It's actually an acrostic in Hebrew. It's written by the alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hev, Av, Zion, Chet, Yod, Kof, Nun, all the way down through, so that young ladies could memorize it to help fight the battle between your ears. So that when you get caught up in it and you feel like you're losing, to go back to the Word of God. A Christian musician in Asheville, when I used to love listening to in college, wrote a song specifically about this concept, written specifically to his wife. And it's kind of this fantastic kind of magical little moment where he says, look, if I, if I could give you any present in the world... The present I would give you would be a mirror so that when you look at yourself in it, you see yourself not as you think, but as I think. So that you would see yourself not through your eyes, but through my eyes. Because if you saw yourself through my eyes, so much of your insecurities 
so much of your discontent would pass away. And it's intriguing. I think that's actually what this passage is designed to be for the women of God. It's a, a window into how God sees his creatures and what his design is for them. This is what you're supposed to be. The dress size is so infinitely less important. Secondly, I would say particularly for fathers, as you raise your young men, teach them this is what they desire because they're not hearing it in the world. Again, as I think it's been argued correctly, our culture is attempting to idolize a middle school boy's fantasy for our girls. Do not fall for that and do not let them. Instead, raise them up to treat women with respect and with kindness and to value what God values. You want to know what God thinks is beautiful? Here it is. Teach our boys to do the same. Mothers, particularly with your daughters, please take this scripture and have it impact your home. Conversations need to be had regularly about how charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This must be the drum that we beat in a generation that has it all messed up. And then lastly, I think there's probably no clearer passage that shows the glory of the Holy Spirit. Because again, if the men in the room are being honest, men are like, yeah, sign me up, this sounds great. And again, the women in the room are like, I'm wore out already. And the beauty of the scriptures are clear. That if you know the Lord... If Christ, you have the Spirit of God within you, and He gives all power. Now, when we try to busy ourselves in these ways, in our own strength, in our own abilities, in our own merits, you're right, it is flat out exhausting. It's wearisome, and it is unsuccessful. But to think of what can be accomplished with God himself residing in, with his power being constantly relied upon, with his word bearing rich fruit in the souls of the saints. See, that's part of the challenge of Proverbs and ending with an application for us all. Is this book is actually 100% attainable in some sense, but not in our own abilities. It's only attainable through the Spirit of God. And so it's this wholesome (laughs) reflection of going, man, I just don't measure up, but I want to. How do I? Through Christ and His Spirit. May it be that as we go from this place, we fight against the lies of the devil that are being so strongly proclaimed. And to hold up a new definition of beauty that is attainable through the Spirit of God. Let's pray.
Lord, we bless your name. Forgive us our sins. For the men in the room, we ask that you would forgive us for valuing the wrong things. For the women in the room, we ask for forgiveness for valuing the wrong things. Those values certainly often don't line up the same way, but they're both evil. And Lord, we ask that our definition of what lovely women are would be the saints of God. And the saints that we see around us on a daily basis, the loveliness of wisdom manifest in the fairer gender. Lord, we bless your name. We bless your name that your word covers all aspects of human experience. We bless your name that it is true and right and good for men and women. We bless your name that it is not always convenient, but it is always good. And Lord, we ask that this church particularly, existing in a world that does not value women well, that we would appreciate the precious jewels that you have placed in this place. We bless your name for your generosity towards us, even now, for Christ's sake. Amen.